0: this is a people first radio podcast tracy smith carrier says there are things we could be doing to address poverty but prejudice is proving a big obstacle i got in touch with the royal roads professor to try and learn what she feels are the myths that are stopping progress on poverty
1: My name is Tracy Smith Carrier. I'm an associate professor in the School of Humanitarian Studies at Royal Roads University and the Canada Research Chair in Advancing the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals.
0: What do you feel are the myths that are preventing society from addressing poverty?
1: Well, there are a few, quite a few actually, but I think they all stem from the same place. This notion that some people are deserving of our assistance and others are not and I think a lot of those when you distill them down the myths actually sort of reflect that in that we don't trust people we don't assume the best of people we don't think they're going to work hard enough or that they that, that we question their behaviors or their actions because we think that they ultimately aren't to be trusted And and therefore should be monitored or we should engage in surveillance to make sure that people are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing in society.
0: Can you give me an example or two of how that plays out? Um,
1: Well, I think that like historically we have a long tradition of this. I mean, I think it's sort of ingrained into our collective consciousness, really, going back a number of centuries in terms of how we thought about people living in poverty. So there was an assumption that you know people just need to be work work hard enough and if you are a disciplined person a moral good moral person you work hard enough you can get yourself out of poverty or in financial straits. And so so yeah it was really about trying to incentivize or make people develop a work ethic. So we set up workhouses or poorhouses in society as an attempt to uh, try and instill that work ethic in people. But yeah, I mean, it it really sort of also not only ideas about sort of work ethic, but also just ideas about their morality, their character. You know, it used to be thought that oh yes, these are people that would be more inclined towards immoral actions or criminal behaviors. So all these sort of really negative ideas about people and we know that all of those things are not true <laughs> but that that's really I think embedded into into our thinking and yeah so a, a number of the myths I think are really stem from that.
0: So when you say some of these ideas are embedded into our thinking, does that also embed itself into policies around things like welfare?
1: Absolutely. It is It is the reason why I think there is such a debate about whether or not we should have a basic income in, in Canada is 100% about whether people are deserving of that assistance, right? This notion of, oh, we're just going to give free money to people? Well, what are they going to do with that money, right? Like, are are they going to spend it on drugs? Are they going to, like all of these things, right, that we assume people are going to do with the money, is definitely part of this conversation. So, I mean, one of the big arguments, for example, there's two really are arguments that are regularly discussed, I guess. The one being the cost piece, that we just can't afford it. Again, speaking to people just don't deserve the money. They're not worth spending the money on without even thinking about the fact that actually the system that we have developed now is massively expensive and is completely ineffective. So how are we spending our dollars? Really, we should thinking about the economic costs of what we're doing, as opposed to actually addressing these issues head on. And then the other piece is the work disincentive argument. And that one is really about, well, if you give people money, they're all just going to drop out of the workforce and they're going to sit at home and collect a check all of the research, and there's been a lot of research collected on cash transfer programs around the world indicates this is not the case and that actually work hours can go up, except for a couple of populations which actually makes sense for society. So when they we've done, for example, Evelyn Forget's work in, in Min- on the Minkum study, for example, showed that mothers wanted to take some time off, you know when they first had their babies to spend time with their with their babies the first year of life and that younger people wanted opted to stay in school longer. Well, these are all reasons to drop out of the workforce that are actually helpful for society. So, while there might be minor, you know, reductions in workforce participation, they're actually valuable to society overall. The negative income tax experiments in the United States actually showed that primary workers, the hours went up for for people getting a basic income. So, yeah, it actually what we know is that that when people receive money, they use it in, in positive ways for both society and for the for themselves and for their for their families.
0: You were saying there that the systems we have in place are incredibly expensive. Can you elaborate on that idea? What what exactly does that mean?
1: Well, we have a system that is essentially dealing with the symptoms of our social problems and not the root causes of those problems. And so we pay huge amounts of money to, to, for example, institutionalize people All these sort of institutional, I guess we even think about the the homelessness and and housing sector, it costs a lot more money to have people living on the streets than it does to actually just give people home. Because when those people are living on the streets, they end up in hospital, they end up in psychiatric facilities, they end up in all sorts of institutionalized forms of care that are very, very expensive, so the cost of social housing is a fraction of the money compared to what we are spending in institutional care. So I think the same can be said for poverty. If we actually addressed poverty head on, we would see huge savings in our healthcare system, in our mental health care system, in our addiction services across the board. And so those are huge cost savings that I think need to be calculated, which often aren't. We just people are also concerned of, oh, my goodness, it's going to be way too expensive to give people money. But these systems, just like childcare, we found childcare pays for itself in the amount of GDP and activity that we get from having these kinds of programs that that actually I think these things will take care of themselves. So we'll, they'll they'll be cost savings out of them.
0: Do you feel there are any myths specifically related to poverty and mental illness or addiction that you've come across?
1: Yeah, I think I think there's an assumption that, you know, it's just people in poverty that have mental illness and addictions. And I think it's really important to note that these span across the socioeconomic uh, spectrum. That people, even at the highest levels of income, have uh, mental health issues, have anxiety, have all sorts of things. They often have access to private health care dollars. So they're able to find, you know, antidepressants that are paid for through their their health insurance plans that other people that don't have those uh, insurance benefits don't have access to. So and and the other piece I think is is that we know is that living in poverty chronically is very stressful and can generate mental illness and addictions issues we know if we actually construct environments or or ensure that people are supported in their environments that these issues diminish so so having a basic income for for example we know through research actually helps to alleviate these issues Having access to income and alleviating poverty reduces these issues. Yeah. So as opposed to, again, that myth that, you know, oh, give people money, they're just going to spend it on addictions and whatnot. It's actually the reverse.
0: You're listening to People First Radio. Right now, we're hearing from Tracy Smith Carrier. She's a professor at Royal Roads University in Victoria and the Canada Research Chair in Advancing the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. She's also recently written about what she feels are myths that prevent society from addressing poverty. You're the Canada Research Chair in Advancing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I want to ask you a few things about that, but maybe the best place to start is what are the UN Sustainable Development Goals?
1: Well, the Sustainable Development Goals are a framework for addressing some of the world's you know, global social problems and a lot of these social problems traverse countries across the world. So things related to cli- the climate, climate change issues, things related to poverty and homelessness. These things, again, across the world, these are issues that are at play. And al- and most of them are intersecting, right? Like poverty intersects with food insecurity and food inter- insecurity intersects with homelessness. Like they are intersecting issues that, that need to be addressed. So the framework is aspirational. And that's, I think, one of the issues some people... Would like to actually see it that it'd be mandatory as opposed to a, a vision statement, because I think in a lot of ways that has allowed political actors to be let off the hook for for actually doing things that they signed up for with an aspirational statement like the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But it's a place for us to start. I mean, it is a place that all countries or member states of the UN have agreed upon to say we want to address these issues. So I think it's a good place for us to start. And it's a place, again, for us to be able to hold political actors accountable for their actions and for their policy decisions.
0: So as the Canada Research Chair in Advancing the UN Sustainable Development Goals, what does your research and your, your kind of day-to-day work, what does that look like?
1: Well, I do a lot of research. I primarily do research. I do some teaching as well, but very much involved in 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 community work and in trying to To increase awareness about the Sustainable Development Goals and how we can make movement on them, both locally, nationally and globally. So I'm doing work in Uganda, for example, with young mothers who, in a a number of cases, experienced gender-based violence during COVID-19 and trying to ensure that they're supported and that their babies are supported. I'm very much a part of the Basic Income Movement here in Canada. So, working towards trying to advance policy decisions that would actually ensure that people have access to income security. And, like I said, that poverty really has, you know, poverty and its symptoms, right? Food insecurity is a symptom of poverty, and, and homelessness is a symptom of poverty. So, I mean, addressing those things across the board. I think before I came into this role, I really was interested in poverty specifically and, and its symptoms. And now I'm doing much more work to see how the climate impacts poverty and income security. So sort of broadening my focus to account for what we know is going to happen, which is more, much more climate disruptions in the future and how that's going to impact people and the planet in the future.
0: You talked about the basic income movement in Canada. Can you tell me wh- where that's at? How, what kind of maybe pilot projects have been done, and what the the future portends?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we got a Social Sciences Humanities Research um, Council grant to do a. Conference, the Basic Income Forum that's happening in May in Ottawa, and we're really hoping that that's going to be an action-oriented conference. We're bringing, we're inviting politicians, senators, people with lived experience of poverty, community workers across the all sectors to come to really, uh, like I said, an action-oriented event that is intended to equip equip people with the skills to really advance this. So work on how do we write policy briefs? How do we how do we use our social media feeds to get the word out, um, to really advance um, education? I think we need to educate people about the social determinants of health and and make them understand that that we actually really do need to address these issues if we're going to make any movement on on um, poverty and homelessness. So uh, I guess going back to your earlier question about some of the project or some of the um, pilots, there were a number of pilots that were done in the United States, five of them that uh, ran in the 1970s. We had the the Minkum experiment that ran in the 1970s in, in uh, Manitoba. And uh, most recently we had the ontario basic income pilot that ran for a couple of years before being canceled by the the conservative government that came in we we do have a grant looking at the experiences of folks that were on that ontario pilot now and you know from the emerging data we're we're seeing how devastating it is to actually provide people with secure some you know, some security for a period of time and then and then take it away from them People's lives were were being improved. People had enrolled into, into uh, university classes, had you know um, made improvements on their housing and on on their their diets, and all sorts of wonderful impacts. And then and then had that money taken away, and how devastating that was. There does seem to be, I mean, we do have forms of basic income already in Canada in that we have the guaranteed income supplement as part of our sort of pension programs for older adults. We have the Canada Child Benefit for families. We have now said that we're going to provide a disability, Canada Disability Benefit for people with disabilities. So we're we're sort of you know, incrementally moving towards, you know, including more of the population in in providing income security benefits. But we really just need to go across the board and make sure that everybody has access to them.
0: And we started off this conversation by talking about uh, what you've written are some myths that you feel are preventing society from addressing poverty. Do those end up playing into the basic income conversation at the political level?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, like I said, the the work disincentive argument and the cost argument are the biggest ones that we encounter. And uh, the work disincentive piece is all about, you know, a sense that people are lazy and, you know, don't have the motivation to work. And the 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 reality is that uh, that people living in poverty are working really really hard. I mean, some of them are in three four five jobs just to make ends meet. Um, even but even trying to interact with so many different systems, we're doing um, some work now looking at people having to navigate multiple systems. That's work that people are doing, and so it's not it's not a matter of you know people not being motivated. It's not a matter of people not working hard enough. It's a matter of the fact that we just don't have good paying jobs available anymore. They're becoming fewer and far between to find, you know, well-paid jobs with benefits that you can raise a family on, that you can live on in, in cities that, you know, it takes a quarter of a million dollars just to buy a house in now. Like, it's just the cost of living is such that it's, you know, we've just not kept up. The, the, the employment sector is just not kept up with the cost of living.
0: This is People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh and my guest is Tracy Smith Carrier of Royal Roads University. Our conversation was sparked by Carrier's recent writing on the subject of myths around poverty. I wish it just took a quarter of a million dollars to buy a home in a major city these days. Oh no!
1: I mean, no. I, mean, I was I was referring to an article I read in the I think it was in the Vancouver Sun that was talking about the fact that somebody had a quarter of a million dollar annual income and was uh, not able. To, I see. Or, I see. Know, I see. Uh, and so I was thinking, yeah, like if you if you're making an annual income of a quarter of a million dollars and you and you can't get into housing markets in Canada, there's there's an issue, right?
0: So what can one person do about any of that?
1: Well, I think people can first, uh, you know, having these conversations, I think is helpful. Having people read more about it, learn more about it, you know, engage in some of the with some of the literature on these projects, on, on some of the research that's been done, having conversations with their their local Politicians, whether it be at the local level, whether it be at the provincial level or federal level, you know, having conversations with their families about these issues, right? I think most people, if you talk to them and said, you know, are things working well? Most people will say, no, like the system's broken. We need to do something about it. And certainly the evidence seems very clear that the more that we have a robust, generous social safety net, the better society is able to to thrive the more healthy a population we will be so that means you know redressing some of these uh, systems that are are punitive are just completely inadequate to meet people's needs and and really focus on addressing those issues i think that also for me it's not just a conversation about poverty for me it also has to be a conversation about wealth because the reality of it is is that there's tremendous wealth in society and folks at the highest level i mean when you look back in the 1950s for example 1952 corporate taxes were were as high as income taxes right now we're we're expecting all of the public purse to come from income personal income taxes from from individuals and meanwhile corporations really don't have to pay their fair share they used to have to pay like 50% actually at one point it used to be as high as 80 80% of their of their profits were you know subject to tax and it's been dwindled down now to 15% and then there's huge tax evasion, right? We know about these tax havens. We know about, you know, people that have been able to, to get those tax loopholes. And that's a real problem. In fact, almost all of the, the tax expenditures that we have in our current tax system benefit people in the top 10% of the income distribution. We need to have a conversation about, about that because we are, we are subsidizing through our public dollars a group of people who are super wealthy. So, yeah. So for me, it's not just about talking about conversations about poverty. It has to be conversations about how do we address wealth, because the literature is also clear that when we have a lot of inequality in society, it's deadly. And it's deadly not only for people at the bottom of the income distribution, it also affects people that are in the middle and in the upper upper bounds of the distribution as well.
0: What's it like maybe having to interact with those realities in a professional capacity every day you know i think i imagine most people hear about you know the panama papers and they think wow that sucks and and ha- like you say have maybe an awareness of a lot of what you're talking about but then you know maybe just kind of go on with their day and manage yeah i don't know what's what's the the effect of doing this every day professionally
1: Well, I'm, I'm very passionate about it. So I think that I, you know, I, I'm inspired by a lot of, of the things that I'm reading and the research that, but also I find it really, really hard to, I mean, I mentioned that I'm reading through some of the stories of people that were on the Ontario pilot and when that got cancelled and what that meant for people that, you know, couldn't, couldn't give their, you know, uh, couldn't give gifts for Christmas for to their children or, you know, can't go out for a cup of coffee with a friend anymore. Like it's just, I, I can find that really, really hard. But I also believe that people are ultimately like, you know, contrary to these myths, we are, people are pro-social. They are altruistic. People do care about each other. So I think drawing on that. And, you know, even thinking about, you know, Martin Luther King and his, you know, I have a dream, I have a, I have a dream, you know, think, dreaming and envisioning new, a new way of, of doing this, as opposed to all, it's all just doom and gloom. And, you know, we're helpless, we can't do anything about this to say no, we can. We have done it historically, we've changed things, turned things around. We can impose taxes on wealthy people and 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 then we'll have more money for for making sure that everybody, you know, has access to to health and prosperity.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to bring to the conversation today?
1: That that there are some, you're going back to, you know, what are some of the, the things that are happening right now in the movement? There are some really positive things that are happening. Newfoundland and Labrador have recently announced plans to introduce basic income for people ages 60 to 64 receiving social assistance. PEI has um, developed, uh, there's been a report about PEI and maybe introducing a basic income there. There's certainly well, the candidate disability benefit is a form of basic income. I, I think that that there is certainly momentum on on basic income. What we would like to see is a conversation with the federal government to say, "Get behind these these." you know, provincial uh, plans, but also consider something that's going to actually particularly address the working age population, because they seem to be the one that often are left out of these conversations. Again, we like to think about those deserving populations, you know, older adults or people with children. and But we need to ensure that everybody is included, that nobody gets left behind.
0: Tracy Smith Carrier, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much. Tracy Smith Carrier is the Canada Research Chair in Advancing the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. She's also an Associate Professor in the School of Humanitarian Studies at Royal Roads University in Victoria.
1: People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners.